2: Good morning. Thank you for joining me for another exciting episode of New Book Network's African American Studies podcast. I am your host, Katrina Anderson. Today, I am joined by Christian Green, who is a reporter and the author of the New York Times bestseller "Something Must Be Done About Prince Edward Country, which received the Library of Virginia Literary Award for Nonfiction and the People's Choice Award. Christian has worked as a journalist for two decades for newspapers, including the Boston Globe, the San Diego Union Tribune, and the Richmond Times-Dispatch. She has a master's in public administration from the Harvard Kennedy School. Today, we will be discussing her new book, The Devil's Half Acre, the untold story of how one woman liberated the South's most notorious jail. Kristen, thank you for joining me today. Thank you
1: so much for inviting me. I'm pleased to be here.
2: Can you tell us a little bit about the book?
1: Oh, I'm glad to. Um, The Devil's Half Acre is the story of an enslaved woman, Mary Lumpkin, who was forced to have the children of her enslaver, Robert Lumpkin, who owned and operated the slave jail, Lumpkin's jail, which was also known as the Devil's Half Acre by the people who were held there. Mary Lumpkin worked to have her children, who were born enslaved like her, educated, to free them and herself, and to secure an inheritance. When her enslaver died, she inherited all his land, including the slave jail, which she rented to a preacher from the North, who turned it into a school for free Black men, laying the groundwork for one of America's first historically Black colleges and universities. Virginia Union University, which is still in existence today.
2: Why did you select Mary Lumpkin as your topic? How did you come across her life?
1: Well, I first came to this story as a reporter working on assignment in 2011. I had moved from Boston back to my home state of Virginia in 2010, and I was working on the book that you previously mentioned, Something Must Be Done About Prince Edward County, Um, And while working on that, I took a job working as a reporter at the Richmond Times Dispatch. One day I was filling in for another reporter and I was assigned to write about the work of activists to reclaim an African burial ground in downtown Richmond. Doing research on the site before that assignment, I heard of a nearby slave jail and an enslaved woman who lived there with the owner Robert Lumpkin. An article in the Smithsonian Magazine described an archeological dig at Lumpkin's jail and Robert Lumpkin, a slave trader. It mentioned an enslaved woman named Mary Lumpkin who had five children with him and quote, acted as his wife. At the time, I wasn't familiar with slave jails or with slave traders, but I was curious to learn more. And it was Mary Lumpkin who piqued my interest. I knew an enslaved woman couldn't marry a white man, and I knew she wasn't able to consent to her enslaver either. Long after I filed the story about the African burial ground, I was still thinking about Mary Lumpkin and what her life was like. Not only had her story never been told, I believed that no story quite like hers had been told either. This book was a natural segue from Something Must Be Done About Prince Edward County, which was about leaders in my hometown, including my grandparents, closing the public schools in 1959 to avoid school desegregation. When I finished that book, I wondered how many more hidden histories are there. And it turned out that this one, this big one in my backyard still had my attention. I wondered what it meant for Mary Lumpkin to be in her position, living in a jail, mothering children she did not consent to have with a man she did not choose, a man who was known for his brutality and disregard for Black lives. I wondered what it was like to be protected in some ways from the evils of slavery and to also have a role in the business of slavery, helping Robert Lumpkin to manage and run his jail.
2: Well, I mean, it's something that, you know, I can see, definitely can see the appeal to want to know more about her life, because as I was reading, I kept thinking, wow, this is such a fascinating fact and tidbit to learn as much as we possibly can about her and her experience. And I want to ask you, how do you think most people think about enslaved women? And how did you seek to reshape that narrative?
1: I mean, that's a tough one, because I I think that enslaved women are a monolith in the American narrative. The stories of enslaved women share similarities, of course, but they're not some monolithic group. They are individuals with their own stories. And slavery was a system that did this to them, right? It encouraged the wrongs. But over history, only the stories of... Uh, The most brave women or or the stories of masculine style escapes have been told. Women like Harriet Tubman, you know, who escaped slavery and then returned to free countless others. But stories of most enslaved women who had to stay put because they had children that they wouldn't leave are never told. And of course, they are the vast majority of the two million women and girls enslaved in the American South. I wanted to tell another kind of story of an enslaved woman, one that hadn't been told, one that wasn't part of the American narrative.
2: Now, what are your sources that you're using in your analysis? What were you able to find?
1: Well, one reason I hesitated about writing this book about Mary Lumpkin was that there were just little scraps of information about her when I did initial searches, um, and so I knew that would be the biggest challenge of writing a book about her is just not having um, enough facts to to put together, you know, her life story. So I started by building a timeline of events in her life that I did already know about and cross-referenced important historical events. I created spreadsheets of the names of people I thought might be connected to her or to Robert Lumpkin, and blew up maps of the places that she lived. Um And I went searching for a ton of documents. I, I untied a red ribbon from which the government red tape got its name to reveal crumbling court documents. I read birth and death records, property records, wills, cemetery records. I searched domestic shipping records, census records, city directories, school archives. I used historic newspaper articles, newspaper advertisements, and military records. I read narratives of enslaved women, interviews with formerly enslaved people, and the biography of Anthony Burns, an enslaved man who had escaped um, to Boston and then was later held at Lumpkin's jail. I also traveled to Philadelphia, where Mary Lumpkin once owned a home, to Ipswich, Massachusetts, where her daughters attended school and to New Richmond, Ohio, where she spent the final decades of her life and is buried. I also connected with other people doing the research um, related to the Lumpkin family, and I met a friend on Ancestry.com who helped me figure out who Mary Lumpkin's children lived with in Philadelphia before she arrived. Uh, This friend had been researching the former enslaver of the woman that Mary Lincoln's children lived with, um, Virginia resident William Edlow, Harriet Barber, a formerly enslaved woman who had been forced to have the children of her enslaver and had been freed at his death. Um, She was a woman that I couldn't figure out who she was by just looking at the records. And so this outreach by somebody else on ancestry.com allowed me to find a lot more information for him and also for myself for this book. So um, so networking, I guess, is also helpful. And of course I used the research of historians who came before me to flesh out the story of other enslaved women uh, forced to have the children of their enslavers. I also built Mary Lumpkin's family tree and found descendants scattered around the country. Um, one of the most useful Documents that I um, I turned to, to, especially towards the end of my research, was the um, the 2,300 first person accounts of slavery um, that were recorded, collected, and recorded in the 1930s. as part of the Federal Writers' Project of the Works Progress Administration.
2: That was a daunting research task that you had to undertake, but it was well worth it because you were able to recover the life of Mary Lumpton, who, as for many Black women, as you say, have been relegated to the margins of the story. So whose work, I want to say, do you think influences your own work?
1: Well, of course, there are many Black scholars who are doing this work and... Um, I think publishers are realizing the demand for for these stories. Um, I have a lot of respect for Nicole Hannah-Jones of the New York Times, who has done a lot of work on desegregation of schools, but then recently turned her energy to the 1619 Project, which she engineered. Um, I think a a comparable book... um, would be All That She Carried by Taya Miles. And I also found Stephanie Camp's uh, Closer to Freedom really useful. I was also influenced by the narratives of formerly enslaved women who who wrote their own stories, such as Harriet Jacobs' book, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl.
2: Those are most definitely, I want to say, some of the great works that are out there. I'm familiar and have read almost all of those myself in my own research process. So those are great um, works that you got a chance to take a look at. So I want to ask you, who was Mary Lumpkin?
1: Uh, Mary Lumpkin was an enslaved woman who was forced to have the children of her enslaver, Robert Lumpkin who owned and operated a brutal, brutal slave jail known as Lumpkin's jail. But she was not a passive victim as, you know, the narratives sometimes lead us to believe she believed in education and believed in freedom. Uh, She worked to educate her children, to free her children and herself and to secure an inheritance. It's kind of a simple boiled down version
2: of her. Yes. But it's a good one now, and one of the things you do that was really great that I enjoyed in the book was your discussion of the domestic slave trade and how that was connected to Virginia's economy. Can you speak a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, and I found it was a, a real education for myself too. I mean I li- I've lived in Virginia most of my life and didn't you know couldn't have explained what was so different about the Transatlantic and the domestic slave trade um, or how you know it impacted Virginia. But doing this research, it became very clear. So after the Transatlantic slave trade ended in 1808, Virginia's downriver or domestic slave trade already existed but at that time it became more visible and more vital. Um, by the time Mary Lumpkin was born in 1832, Virginia plantations enslaved more people than they could afford to keep, as most were no longer planting tobacco, which stripped the land of its nutrients and required lots of labor. So, as Virginia's need for enslaved labor waned, the demand picked up in the lower South on sugar and cotton plantations, and Virginia became a main port of the domestic slave trade. Um, And that domestic slave trade necessitated somewhere to keep enslaved people before and after they were sold. Um, And this led to the rise of the slave jail. The practice of selling enslaved people, like I said, required somewhere to house them before and after sale as farmers came from the countryside looking to make quick money by selling the people they enslaved or slave traders drove around rural roads, picking up people to sell and bringing them back to Richmond so that they could make more money. Um, in Richmond, these enslaved people were housed in slave jails designed not for criminals, but for any enslaved person who had the misfortune of being sold. One of these Richmond jailers got his start in the slave trade business by, I'm sorry, not in the slave trade, in the slave jail business, by selling pir- selling pirates for the government. Uh, let's scratch that. That's wrong. I'm going to back up. <laughs> he wasn't selling pirates. He was housing pirates. Okay. <laughs> okay. Got gotcha. it. Uh, in Richmond, they were housed in slave jails designed not for criminals, but for any enslaved person who had the misfortune of being sold. One Richmond jailer got his start by housing pirates for the government Enslaved people were kept in these so-called slave jails until their sellers could get the amount that they desired at sale. And then often, they were kept after sale in the jail while their buyers attempted to purchase more enslaved people, enough so that they could link them together in chains known as a coffle and force them to walk south to their new homes. So, you have a a sense of what this looked like in Richmond, but at this time, slavery was the state's most profitable industry. Farmers came from miles around to sell enslaved people in Richmond. Um, And roughly a million people would be moved from the Upper South, so Virginia and Maryland, to the Lower South prior to the Civil War as part of the slave trade. In 1840, uh, the year by which Robert Lumpkin probably owned Uh, Mary Lumpkin. Virginia was responsible for shipping about half of all enslaved people who crossed state lines for the Lower South. And Richmond was the second largest slave trading hub after New Orleans. Um, So that gives you an idea of just how important slavery was to the economy in Virginia
2: it was integral in so many ways that you don't even normally think about beyond the initial usage for just tobacco. Um, It continued in many ways and they were able to be involved in that domestic slave trade. Now I wanna ask you about the domestic slave trade and its impact on black women and girls, such as Mary Lumpkin and how that's connected to the so-called fancy trade that occurs?
1: Um, I mean, black women and girls were especially vulnerable, um, particularly to sexual abuse. And it was something that women feared for themselves, um, for their daughters and granddaughters, you know, they, and they attempted to hide girls getting their period um, in order to protect them longer. They knew that once um, they were in puberty that that they would be vulnerable uh wait Mary Lumpkin was a light-skinned enslaved woman she was likely born enslaved, and it seems likely she was born to um a mixed race mother um, so her mother could have been the the child of um an enslaver and an enslaved woman um like her own children would be um and these traders seemed to take a particular liking to light-skinned enslaved women um and so they were these women were subject to abuse by the traders but also to by people who were purchasing um enslaved people they 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 fetched more money than any other category of enslaved people, including like the young males who, you know, were capable of doing the most difficult work. Um, But sometimes these women could end up in brothels, particularly in New Orleans. So, you know, it it was that, or be purchased at a high price by some enslaver um, heading to the deep South. Mary Lumpkin's story, is a little different in that, you know, I can't be sure that she was part of the quote unquote fancy trade, but she was definitely chosen by Robert Lumpkin. Um, and he could look around his neighborhood in Shaco Bottom, Richmond, and see other slave traders who had chosen a similar path where they picked, selected an enslaved woman to be the mother of their children and then treated the women and these children in a way that may have looked like a family to outsiders, right? They, they housed them, um, typically in their homes, you know, in the slave trader's home with him, um, you know, functioning as a family unit. I say it looked like a family because of course the women could not consent, right? So, um, it's not a true family in that sense, but something that looked like a family unit. And they they tended to treat these children as beloved children and, and educated them, um, bought them music lessons, um, bought them treats and clothing. And in many cases that I've documented, um, also freed them and moved them to the North so that they could be safe.
2: Now, do you think these... And it's hard to say relationship, because as you just noted, it's something that Mary Lumpkin did not consent to. But do you think sometimes that these relationships, I'm trying to think of another word for it, are misrepresented and sometimes lessen the trauma that Black women suffered in these relationships? Oh, yes, of course.
1: Um, I think... I think they're romanticized like the relationship between Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson. People forget that enslaved women did not have the right or the ability to consent, that they are considered property. They are treated as property and that these are very young girls with much older white men.
2: Um, (laughs) Yeah. That's so, what I was just about to say. The age factor that's like right there in your they they are young. They are so young when many of these relationships, as what they were called, begin. And you think about just as you read with Harriet Jacobs, these are young girls. Mm,
1: that's right. I mean, in the time, obviously women did marry and have children earlier than they do now. But, you know, this is, we're talking that Robert Lumpkin may have had. Uh, Mary Lumpkin in his possession by the time she was eight years old, right? She has her first child with him. She gives birth at, at age 13. So this is even younger than than what you would see with white women of that era. Um, so I, I feel these cannot be described as romantic relationships, um, as traditionally has been the case in Virginia. I think Americans want to sanitize this abuse And the trauma of slavery and turn these stories into some kind of love story. Um, They want to make Virginia enslavers benevolent and kind, um, but I see that as an American pathology to take something so deeply despicable and call it romantic.
2: I agree. There's no way around that these were exploitative relationships that as you say, a woman cannot consent to. There was really no choice here. It was more of, I have to make the best of this situation for myself and my children. This is not, if I could, of course, I would be ready and willing to get out of it, but I don't have that choice. So I'm going to do what I have to, to survive for myself and for them.
1: Right. We just don't know what that looked like. Like We know that blacks and whites were not allowed to marry. Um and so when we think about what, what, you know, Mary Lumpkin's life with Robert Lumpkin looked like, I mean, we know she was very young. Um, we don't know, did she did she fight him or did she decide to give him what he wanted in exchange for the promise of freedom and the education of her children? I mean, we just don't know what those kind of, you know, how she used her agency to to get what she wanted for her children and what that negotiation looked like.
2: Right. And she was living at the devil's half acre. She was at a jail. I mean, that in and of itself, that's a very, you know, difficult environment. And as she is watching all of these enslaved people come and go and, you know, mentally, I can't even conceptualize what she felt during that process and the things that she saw um, as she endured that. So can you speak a little bit about the jail itself that was there.
1: Sure. I mean, it's worse than we can even really imagine. Um, Robert Lumpkin bought this Chaco jail property by 1844. It was already a jail. Um, but he may have been operating it years prior to purchase as, as a renter. We know that it was built in 1830 and operated by you know two previous slave traders. Um, an earlier generation of slave traders. So he was, Robert Lumpkin was among the the last generation of slave traders. The jail was located off of what is now 15th Street in Richmond in a low lying area of Shaco Bottom. And Shaco Creek ran through the rear of the property, frequently flooding it. It is said that the jail complex was one of the most prominent features in Richmond um, and was just down the hill a few blocks from the Capitol. The two story jail sat at the center of the plot, and we know it held well over a hundred people at a time. The property also included Robert Lumpkin's home where Mary Lumpkin and their children may have lived with him. Uh, The home faced the street known as Lumpkin's Alley, named for Robert Lumpkin. And the property also had a boarding house for visiting enslavers who were there to sell or purchase enslaved people, and for slave traders um, who traveled there for similar purposes. Uh, And that also served as an auction house. The parcel had a kitchen and a bar for feeding these visitors and was surrounded by 12 foot high fences and tracking dogs. Uh, We also know that Robert Lumpkin punished enslaved people for a fee. There were iron rings on the floor of the jail where enslaved people would be chained down and flogged by an overseer. He provided many of the services a visiting slave trader or enslaver would need. Um, Along the alley named for him, there were other slave jails and neighborhood businesses that catered to the trade, such as cobblers to make new shoes, wagon repair shops, fix wheels and blacksmiths. To repair horseshoes, there were taverns and auction houses where slaves could be sold.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail—from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Wow, he had quite the setup. Uh, This was, you know, more than just a jail. He had the full experience for those um, enslavers and potential um, traders who were going to be purchasing someone um, there. He wanted to satisfy all of their needs at at his jail. And it, you know, obviously, financially, it was beneficial to him. Um, Turin did this. But do we know kind of what Mary's life was like at the jail?
1: Well, so we know she was born in 1832 and had her first child at 13 in 1845. Um, and of course, her children were born enslaved like her because children followed the status of the mother, um, which at the time was a new law that conflicted with British law. We think she likely managed Robert Lumpkin's home and lived there with the children, but she may have also managed parts of the business. We can see from uh, some of the other, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> <coughs> let me take a sip here, pause for a second. She likely managed Robert Lumpkin's home and lived there with her children, but she may have also managed parts of his business. Um, We know that other enslaved women who were forced to have the children of their enslavers, slave jail owners in the area, were in fact running parts of the business um, for the men who enslaved them. So it seems likely that she was given some role um, there too. But well, we don't know exactly what that looked like. We do know that once she had children, her focus must have been on protecting them. Now we know that some slaveholders sold their own children, so children that they fathered with enslaved women for profit. Um, Mary was self determined and self reliant. She demanded money from Robert Lumpkin agreed to do, perhaps agreed to do what he wanted in exchange for freeing them um, and for providing an education to them. One of her descendants told me that she she said to him she would do what he wanted, but quote, these children have to be free. And we also know that she made a friend, a close friend while she was there, and perhaps more friends. um, a woman, enslaved woman that she hired to work for her to do some sewing, um, became over time a close friend. Um, This woman, Lucy Ann Cheatham, was also um, chosen by a slave trader from New Orleans to have his children. And so she was shipped to New Orleans. We can see her on, on on a ship in the shipping records being sent to New Orleans where she would soon become um, the father, father. Whoops. Sorry. <laughs> she did not become a father.
2: Yes. You can go again. Okay.
1: We could see her in New Orleans um, soon becoming the mother of slave trader, John Hagen's children, but they kept up their friendship um, sending letters between the two of them and Lucianne Chieden Hagen would still come back to Richmond with John Hagen Um, and when she did she chose to stay with Mary Lumpkin Um, and so I think about what it must have been like for Mary Lumpkin to have someone that she could confide in who shared the same experience uh, that she did or very similar experience and I think about how their friendship Um, could have been a tool for survival, could have been a form of resistance.
2: Yes. And just having someone, as you say, who has a similar experience to be able to share that with someone who has, knows in much of what you're experiencing and just to have someone to talk to um, with whom she could relate. I am very glad that she had that there was someone there for her to go through that. Um, Now, in terms of her children with Robert, um, what happens to the children?
1: Well, we know that the two eldest, who are daughters, the only daughters, um, are sent to school in Ipswich, Massachusetts, um, an all-girls school, private school, um, in 1856 which, you know, gave them a huge head start on freedom, right? Um, like almost a decade. While the chi- those children are there, the daughters are there in Massachusetts, Mary Lumpkin buys a home in Philadelphia in her own name, um, you know, which is incredibly remarkable. I mean, we know that, that it was done with Robert Lumpkin's approval and his money for, you know, Seems likely. Um, and he may have been there with her to do the buying, or he hired someone, you know, to do it on his behalf. But the fact that it was in his in her name, you know, is really incredible. Um, she moves all the children to Philadelphia before the start of the Civil War. They're they're there by um 1860, living with the women. a woman I mentioned earlier, Harriet Barber. Um The four of them are. And then she moves with her youngest, who's a baby, um, soon after to join them there in Philadelphia. Um, And then, you know, it seems likely that those children never returned to Richmond, um, certainly never returned to live in Richmond if they ever did go back. But, um, you know, they they forged a life of freedom from that point on. and. Benefited in some ways from Robert Lumpkin's earnings back in the slave trade in Richmond.
2: That is remarkable. She's in Philadelphia, um, her and her children, they're living in freedom. So, how would you describe their life in the North? Do you think that Mary might have found a sense of community there? <laughs>
1: I mean, that's kind of a tough one. Um, I mean, at that time, you know, the, Philadelphia was you know, the black city in America. Um, you know, a ton of people had immigrated there. I'm not sure what I want to say on this. Sorry. So I'm just kind of spitting things out. Um, let me pause for a second. Because of where I see Mary Lumpkin living in Philadelphia, and the kind of people living around her. I mean, I can, I can look at them in the census and see that there are some movers and shakers in this rich this, uh, Philadelphia Black community. I think she might have been able to connect with, with people around her. Um, we also know that two families from Richmond, the children of two other slave jail Owners and their children with enslaved women have moved to Philadelphia at the same time. One family lives right around the corner from Mary Lumpkin and her children. And so, you know, you can think about them having that, you know, where Lucienne Cheatham was a real support for her when she was living in Richmond. In Philadelphia, she had another um, formerly enslaved woman who had known her for years who's, who lives around the corner and who has children, and they were they're kind of going through this transition. It must have been a very difficult transition to go from living in a slave jail as enslaved, you know, having all these enslaved people come through their jails to living a life in Philadelphia that, you know, where they were technically free. Um, everyone around them was, was also free. Um, but they may not have had a ton of resources and it's and there was also a bit of while, while Philadelphia was you know a powerful black hub at this time there was also tension in the city from white people who were concerned that black immigrants were taking their jobs you know the same old story that we hear today about um immigrants migrants so There was some tension there. You know, it's hard to imagine exactly what her life looked like. Did she have enough resources from Robert Lumpkin that she didn't have to work? Or was she seeking out domestic labor there to try to keep the family afloat? Uh, It's just difficult to know exactly what her life looked like. But we do know that it was a big change because... She was no longer enslaved and she was no longer living in a slave jail. And she was surrounded by other black people who had, you know, many of whom had escaped the same sort of life that she had as enslaved people.
2: I know it's it's one of those things where you wish that there was a journal that she had kept so you could kind of just get a window into her mind. But, you know, as I know from my own research, those are a few and far in between. They've just, you know, that just rarely happens. But we have learned, as you have as well, how to read against the grain to figure out um, some of the things that we want to learn about Black women's experience. Now, I want to ask you, what role does race and identity play in the lives of Mary Lumpton? Mary Lumpkin, excuse me and her children and descendants
1: It's hard to know exactly how Mary Lumpkin might have identified um, you know I see that her daughters passed as white I I, I think that her oldest daughter had married um, a mixed race person too um, and he might have been formerly enslaved but he dies fairly or disappears fairly early. Um, And I see her later in life identifying as white and her, interestingly, her younger sister also marries someone mixed race. Um, He marries Harriet Barber's son. She marries Harriet Barber's son, the woman that they had lived with in Philadelphia and she had known since she was a child. She marries him much later Um, and they also pass for white um, living in the Midwest. I don't know what happened with her three sons, how they identified, Um, they sort of disappear to history, but I know that her, you know, the, the generations, at least following the oldest daughter's family line, you know, they, they have identified as white ever since then. and Mary Lumpkin has really been erased from from their memory. Um, I mean, they have no connection to Robert Lumpkin either. You know, they didn't. They had no knowledge of either Mary Lumpkin, the enslaved relative, or Robert Lumpkin, the enslaver relative. Um, but yeah, the the family really has identified as white and didn't know otherwise until I called a couple of
2: years ago. Oh wow. I'm sure that was quite the um, historical experience for them. Um, but it's always nice to learn more about like the history um, and one's family history in most cases.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was just such recent history. Like I remember calling the very, the very first person I reached out to from the family. I I was talking with her at a break at her work day and she it was crazy because I you know I had Mary Lumpkin from I was going from the past to the present right she kind of did the opposite this relative she was going from the present backwards and to see that we could you know so easily meet on that that family tree that she could get me there you know um it was really incredible I was just I mean it was only I'm trying to remember if it was six or seven generations but it's just so recent this history um and and then she was remembering like, oh, I have my grandfather was actually like pretty dark skinned and you know it was something we didn't talk about, but later, you know, I had a family member who took me aside and said, Yeah, that's like he was the the black quote unquote sheep of the family. Um but they didn't know that, you know, that he had been that he was a descendant of a black woman. Um I think the story and the family had been that that someone had married an indigenous woman and shamed the family and she had been left off. Yeah. I mean, that so often happens in history, right? Like um, black ancestry becomes indigenous, but then it's in this case, it was still considered shameful. And so that part was left off too. So even though they had, you know, tried to turn it into a softer story, it, it still hadn't been, it was still considered shameful to them. And they hadn't, hadn't shared that, hadn't protected that, that history.
2: Right. It was almost like, okay, we're not going to talk about that. We're just going to, for the most part, pretend that it doesn't happen, um, that it doesn't exist. Um, It's just one of those family history things we know, but no one else really, we're just not going to talk about it. Let's just not delve too deep into that. And that it makes a lot of sense. given the issues that surround that topic. Now I want to ask you, once we get to the civil war and it breaks out, what happens at the devil's half acre?
1: Well, from what I can tell, it continues um, as a place that held enslaved people during the war. I mean, I'm not sure how Robert Lumpkin was able to stay afloat. You know, as we know, people in the South, really white people, really struggled um, to hold on to their businesses, Um, white slave owners and and jail owners, some of them were converted to other uses by either the union or the Confederacy. But um, as far as I can tell, Robert Lumpkin continued to trade in slaves. I don't know how much demand there was for them, but I, you know, I can find advertisements for him housing um, escaped enslaved people for their owners. Um, So because his business was so varied, yeah, he probably used some other part of the the business to to stay afloat. Maybe he you know continued there was no rooms in Richmond, right? Like like it was very hard to find somewhere to stay. so perhaps you know he rented out the rooms um from his from that part of his business. We do know though that he continued to act as a slave trader and and, and hold enslaved people until the very end of the war. And even then, he wanted to keep the people he enslaved. He tried to to get on one of the last trains out of Richmond um, with a coffle of enslaved people, and he wasn't wasn't allowed to. That is just
2: mind-boggling at that point. He's still trying to escape with enslaved people, but yet, to most, not surprising. Um, How... So that begs me to the question, how has Robert Lumpkin been remembered as well as kind of the devil's half acre? What do people think about it? What do people know about it? What do they think of him? Is it just he's a person who was a enslaved jail owner or is he kind of this he's a businessman?
1: Oh gosh, I mean, definitely like his obit, you know, remembered him as, as like a, you know, a gentleman. Um, I mean, I think it's a tough one. I think he's mainly forgotten, right? I mean, he does, when the jail's name pops up, then of course somebody would know that a Lumpkin owned it because it was called Lumpkin's Jail. Um, if he's remembered, he's remembered as a brutal slave trader and slave jail owner. Um, But probably many people were like I was when I set out on this journey and and don't know what a slave trader is and don't know what a slave jail is. Um, So hopefully this book is part of the education on on that part of our history. I mean, I think once the building was um, demolished in the late 1800s, the memory of this jail went with it. Right. Um, And it, it wasn't until the last, I don't know, couple of decades that this history has been resurfaced and Richmond has tried to include it um in its list of slave sites, you know, slavery-related sites. Um and a discussion has taken place about how the whole Shaco Bottom slave trading area should be memorialized. Um and many people said they did not want whatever was built, whatever was done to memorialize the slave trade. They did not want Lumpkin's Jail remembered as Lumpkin's Jail because they thought that that honored this terrible person, um, and that you know. So the name, the Devil's Half Acre, has been has been a name that people said they prefer, and they don't actually want. Um, a lot of people don't want this history to be focused on telling the story of this slave jail because they think there are other stories um, that need to be told to, and it doesn't need to be focused on them. But what is interesting about um, this slave jail is that archaeologists were able to find uh, its foundation. You know, they were able to locate the spot where, where it existed. And so it's the only place in America where you have a, a slave jail that you could build an amazing museum, you know, on the place where enslaved people walked where Mary Lumpkin walked. Um, and so in, in that way, it's, it could be a very exciting way for for Richmond to, to tell its story. Um, but again, you know, there are lots of thoughts about how, how the story should be told, and of course, requires a lot of money and buy-in, um, and it happens to also sit in a floodplain, so that's an additional challenge. Even if we could get past the other challenges,
2: so there's one very famous resident who was at Lumpkin's jail, the Devil's Half Acre, Anthony Burns. What can you tell us about Burns and his experience there uh, at the Devil's Half Acre?
1: Well, I have to give thanks for Anthony Burns because he really provided some of the best description, um, that we have for the jail. Um, and I know that he, you know, he really suffered there. So Anthony Burns was an enslaved person born in Virginia who escaped, um, and was famously captured in Massachusetts. and. federal court case that got a lot of attention was held um, in order to extradite him to his enslaver back in Richmond um, using the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. And Massachusetts and other northern residents were really outraged about this and fought it um, and took to the streets when the judge ruled that he would be sent back to Virginia. Um, And a parade protested you know that his march back to the ship that brought him back to back to Virginia at huge expense to the federal government. He was sent to Lumpkin's jail um, to be punished for the attention he brought to Virginia um, and to slavery, and the torture started immediately. He was taken to what's described as an Unventilated attic above the jail, accessible only by a trap door. Um, he described being confined to a room that was six to eight uh, square feet. And he was not given a bed, but rather provided a bench that was fastened to the wall and a blanket. Um, one of his hands had been broken at some point, and uh, I think during enslavement, and he was handcuffed in what he described as overly tight irons with his hands behind his back and his feet were also shackled. So he wasn't able to change his clothes. He wasn't allowed to use the bathroom. He sat for days on end in his own excrement. Um, He was fed very little. He described it as being cornbread and putrid meat and that he was given water only once or twice a week. Um, And so he obviously became very sick uh, to the point I think he almost died. And maybe at some point when he was so unwell, somebody decided it would be a bad idea to kill him. Um, and he was nursed back to health and eventually sold. He spent four months living in Lumpkin's jail. And during that time, he encountered Mary Lumpkin, who extended warmth and kindness to him, uh, bringing him a hymnal and a Bible she knew that he could read somehow. Um, and his interaction with her gives us this insight into her. You know, we, we know that she was aware of him, so she must have had the ability to move about uh, the jail property. Um, and we know that she had, you know, empathy for other enslaved people who um, were mistreated there. Um, and it went really beyond empathy. She really you know, stuck her neck out in order to deliver him this gift. Um, And his descriptions give us some of the best understanding of what the jail looked like and the cruelty it inflicted. he even witnessed uh, an interaction between Robert Lumpkin and another enslaved woman that that indicated that, that Robert Lumpkin had a relationship with this other enslaved woman that was also being held at the jail. So we are really appreciative that his words got, you know, put down on paper so that, that we can know more about what the jail looked like and the extent of the torture and that we can have this little insight into Mary Lumpkin.
2: That is a, that I most definitely agree with. It's so nice to be able to gain insight from Burns as to what was his perspective on the jail as well. And also, you know, as you said, he interacted with Mary Lumpkin. Um So you get a chance to see her there as well. Even though, and I want to say, there were atrocities, many that occurred at the jail. And as we talked about before, you know, the civil war that's happening, but something changes uh, after the war. And as the time has passed, what happens to the devil's half acre?
1: Well, from what I can tell, Mary returned to Virginia, to Richmond, and to Robert Lumpkin not long after the Civil War ended. Um, I don't know why exactly, you know, did she have feelings for him or did she or had she made some sort of promise to him? Did she just need money and not understand that, you know, he probably wouldn't have any, he wouldn't have many resources. Who knows why she decided to return, but she did return. and. The following year, Robert Lumpkin died and left her everything um, everything that he had, it appears, um, including the jail, including the Devil's Half Acre. Um, and he also acknowledged that Mary Lumpkin's children were also his children and in, in his will, um, which was really important because this book couldn't have been written without knowing that. Um, So I appreciate that he did that. Um, (laughs) She, you know, she had a lot of difficulty after the war, even though you think about her situation, right? She's a lot better off than the average previously enslaved person because of her connection to whiteness, right? Because she has these children who probably are employed in the North because Robert Lumpkin had at one time been a wealthy man, at least, you know, on paper. Um, He had property, you know, so like that is so much more than the average formerly enslaved person had. I mean, I couldn't imagine how bad life was for enslaved people um, at the end of the Civil War until uh, until I read some of these slave narratives and realized, like, financially like freedom actually was like worse for enslaved people after freedom because they no longer had anyone who would clothe them. They had nowhere to go for meals. They didn't have a place to live. Um, It's not like jobs were like readily available. And so like it was dire straits for most formerly enslaved people. And you would think, okay, well, Mary Lumpkin's a little better off. Yes, she was a little better off. And she surely watched how Robert Lumpkin ran the jail and she surely probably helped him run the jail. So she she had some skills that she could put to use. Um, she knew, you know, how to work the system because he had had his hands in, in all the pots trying to make money. Um, but, you know, she didn't have cash. And so she really couldn't pay her taxes. Um, and I watch as these women who formerly enslaved women who were chosen by slave traders, they outlive them. And then they just don't have the money to keep their properties to because they can't pay taxes is the first problem. Um, so she had a lot of worries. She had a lot of financial worries. And at some point she meets a preacher on the street, streets of Richmond. This meeting, you know, may have been random or may have been set up by someone perhaps the preacher at her church. But there's a, a white preacher from the North who wants to start, um, has started a school in Richmond for free black men to train them as preachers and to educate them. And he doesn't have a permanent home for his school. And he's been looking for one and he's really distressed about it when he meets up with Mary Lumpkin. And she says that she thinks that she can help him. Um, and she does. She, rents the jail building to Nathaniel Culver of the American Baptist Home Mission Society so that he could found the Richmond Theological School for Freedmen. And this school um, laid the cornerstone for one of America's first historically Black colleges and universities, which I mentioned earlier, Virginia Union University, when he agreed to rent the jail from Mary for three years at a thousand dollars a year.
2: Oh, wow. I mean, you know, I mean, that's just like, you know, out of something so atrocious came something good and she helped broker that. Um,
1: They called it the devil's half acre, but when she rented it to um, the preacher, and it became a school. They changed the name to God's Half Acre, which I thought was just beautiful.
2: That was beautiful. I mean, that was one of those moments where you say, "Ah, oh, you know, it's." And as I say, you can only imagine the atrocities that had occurred there. Yet you are turning this space into something that will help. Well, help formerly enslaved people. Um, it will help Black people attain education, um, which is something that was so fragile in slavery and even out of slavery. Um, So that was quite the accomplishment. Now, I want to ask you, what do you think is the legacy of Mary Lumpkin?
1: Well, as someone who valued freedom and education, um, she saw that her children were educated and she worked to free her children and herself. But, like you just mentioned, she also ensured that generations of Black men and women would be educated. So, I, I think, you know, her renting that building to Nathaniel Culver, um, I mean, maybe she knew exactly what she was doing, that she was providing an education for more Black people. You know, there's probably wasn't a lot she could do to step in um, and support enslaved people as they came through the doors of Robert Lumpkin's jail. But, you know, maybe um, she was a religious person. So maybe as a religious person that appealed to her, and maybe as a person who valued education, that idea really appealed to her. Um, So yeah, I I think those things are her legacy, the way that she used her agency to to educate and free her children and herself and um, her role in the founding of the school. I think those are huge legacies.
2: Those are very huge legacies, I must say. So what do you want readers to take away from the book?
1: I guess I want them to be aware of how much history is buried in plain sight um, and to realize that the stories they know of enslaved people, of women in particular, and of Generally, what enslavement looked like, or are not representative. That there's so much more to learn, um, and I hope that I'm opening the door to learn more about Mary Lumpkin. I mean, obviously, there's a lot we still don't know about her, and I hope that you know, um, my peeling back a few layers of the onion will will hopefully lead to further
2: studies on her and her legacy. It most definitely will do that. Now, before we wrap up, I have one last question for you. As such a phenomenal author, what are you working on next? Do you have new, any new projects lined up?
1: Um, I'm always working on things. I'm. I'm it's interesting because my first book was about um, civil rights, and then I went back in time a little bit to um, slavery era. And that was mainly in, you know, in documents because there weren't really people to interview. So I really want to do something, um, that's, that's more current day, you know, involves more interviews. And right now I'm really interested in, um, I think, I feel like this is an offshoot of learning about Mary. I'm really, um, interested in this idea of invisibility of women. Um, so yeah, I'm exploring that right now.
2: That's a great topic. So thank you so much for joining me today, um, Kristen. Thanks for having me. Readers, please go out and pick up a copy of The Devil's Half Acre. It is moving. It is insightful. And it provides a differing perspective on Virginia's history. I mean, it shows... A remarkable story of one woman, Mary woman's life, but her life shows us so much about the 19th century during this period, especially for enslaved women. So please, I implore you to go out and pick up a, not, pick up a copy of this book. You will not regret it. It is for academics. It is most especially for non-academics as well. So please, it is on sale now. So go out and pick up a copy.